Please be seated. This story is probably the most famous of Jesus' many exorcisms. It takes place in a small village on the far side of the Sea of Galilee, beyond uh, the realm of Jewish civilization. The exact location has been disputed, narrowed down to three places, Gergesa, Gerasa, and Gadara. Say that three times fast. They are all Greek settlements of various size and influence. But the smallest of these, Gergesa, is the most likely candidate as it's the closest to the shore, a small fishing village, and we're told that Jesus arrived there when he stepped off the boat. Now the location is important textually because Gergesa is also the most isolated of these places. The people there live on the fringe of society. And that's where we find the things that we'd rather not talk about. A reading from Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when he had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain. For he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart, and the shackles he broke in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he had said to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, there on the hillside, a great herd of swine was feeding. And the unclean spirits begged him, send us into the swine, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down to the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The swineherds ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the de demoniac sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion. And they were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine reported it. Then they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. May they be in keeping with the teachings and the wisdom of our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. The 1970 Kentucky Derby 
was by all accounts a wild party. Of course, the same could probably be said about 1970 in general. The racetrack bars were overflowing with hopeful gamblers, wealthy aristocrats, and a desperate uh, legion of journalists just trying to do their job amidst a sea of human chaos, hauling their typewriters around and furiously smoking cigarettes while trying to write a little bit of copy. Hunter S. Thompson, a writer for Scanlon's monthly magazine, was one of these men. It was his job to pen an article on the annual horse races, but he wasn't especially interested in the main event. He was more intrigued by what was going on all around it on the periphery, more interested in the people who were in attendance than in the horses on the racetrack. Unlike most of the others in the press box, Thompson writes, we didn't care what was happening on the track. We had come there to watch the real beasts perform. That's a quote from his legendary publication, which he named, The Kentucky Derby is Decadent and Depraved. Now, most think uh, of the Derby as something fun, you know, uh, a festival to be enjoyed. But Thompson could only revel in the misery, the alcohol-soaked masquerade, and the cynical conviction that these people were denizens of their own private hell, running desperately in circles like the horses they'd come to watch. In an effort to capture this bleak purgatory, Thompson traveled with an artist that he told to sketch the various people in attendance. He was looking for a singular face, uh, a symbol, something that represented the hollow desperation of his fellow human beings. He'd done a few good sketches, Thompson writes, but so far we hadn't seen that special kind of face that I felt we would need for a lead drawing. It was a face I'd seen a thousand times at every derby I'd ever been to. I saw it in my head as the mask of the whiskey gentry, a pretentious mix of booze, failed dreams, and a terminal identity crisis. As you can tell, Thompson was not necessarily a happy man. <laughs> he was a connoisseur of human angst, and he saw it everywhere he looked. He settled himself for hedonistic pleasures, eating like a horse and abusing enough drugs and alcohol every day to knock one unconscious. I'm not sure that he really enjoyed life, but he was an astute, uncompromising observer of it. The Kentucky Derby is decadent and depraved is a brilliant piece of literature, a flat-out refusal to adhere to any notion of professional standards, or even to report on the race itself. And it birthed what would come to be known later as gonzo journalism, a genre more defined by the writer's personal experience than the actual subject of the piece, a sports article that isn't about sports at all, but rather the people watching it. Now, for better or worse, I kind of like to think of myself as a gonzo preacher. <laughs> I know some folks think that I should spend more time talking about the Bible instead of, you know, all the things I end up talking about up here. What's pizza delivery and rock and roll got to do with the gospel? Maybe nothing. Maybe everything. 
I like to come at scripture sideways from a different angle, sneak up on the text, throw a bag over its head, make it confess its secrets. Does that make you uncomfortable? It should, because we have to deal with what's uncomfortable before we can find any comforts. Go where we aren't supposed to go. Talk about the things we don't like to talk about. If we look to the periphery of our culture, beyond all of the Facebook photos of smiling people on family vacations and the healthy juicing recipes and the books about living your best life, we find something like what Hunter S. Thompson witnessed. A lot of people who are sad, tired, lonely, and desperate. We find suicidal teenagers, opioid-addicted housewives, homeless veterans, the mentally ill, and everyone else that the American dream left behind. These are things we don't like to talk about. But Jesus isn't afraid to go there, to the fringe of society, and that's where he finds the sleepy village of Gergesa. It's a small fishing hamlet, an isolated place, the kind of town you might see in a horror movie. The villagers there are afraid, tormented by one of their own who lives among the tombs, howling in the darkness, cutting himself with sharp stones and breaking out of the chains that they use to contain him. The text tells us that he's been infested with demons. And that may well be true. He could also be mentally ill or suffering from some other kind of mental distress. Those things were often confused back then. But for the purposes of the text, I'm not sure it really matters because either way, this man is suffering. He's tormented by a thousand fears and neuroses that prevent him from living his best life. My name is Legion, he tells Jesus, for we are many. And that's a great metaphor, I think, for the countless things that rob us of our joy and prevent us from enjoying this life. Some of us are born with a chemical imbalance in our brains, faulty mix of serotonin and dopamine and a hundred other things that need to be tweaked. Others are the products of broken homes, partners in dysfunctional relationships, victims of trauma or addiction, or just obsessed with something that we can't get over. I wouldn't say he's on the same level as the man from Gergesa, but I saw a troubling interview recently with Papa John, the, uh, the founder and disgraced former CEO of Papa John's Pizza. After he casually dropped a racial epithet in a company conference call last year, the board called for his removal, and suffice it to say, Papa John is not taking it well. I've eaten over 40 pizzas in the last 30 days, he told the local CNBC reporter. They just don't make it the way I used to. It just doesn't taste the same. Well, I only wish that were true because it tasted terrible before and it still does. <laughs> Although it might account 
for the glossy sheen on Papa John's skin in the interview, which appears to be a especially virulent strain of uh, the meat sweats. <laughs> He's still wearing the trademark red button-up shirt that communicates brand loyalty, and he goes on to tell the interviewer with a chilling smile that there will be a reckoning. Forty pizzas in 30 days. My God. What kind of depraved creature could subsist on such an unwholesome diet? This is not a man who is living his best life. And can you imagine the poor guy who has to deliver those pizzas? Or the, the manager of the store where Papa John keeps on showing up complaining that they skimped on the pepperoni the last time he was in just a few hours ago? You can't enjoy your life if you're not well. And take it from me, you certainly cannot be well if you're eating that much Papa John's pizza. Now Jesus, by way of the church, tends to us when we are not well. Much like Ergesa itself, people who struggle with mental distress often feel isolated. But in the church, they, we, can find care and community. We offer a lot of support here for spiritual and mental distress. The clergy, Kendra and myself, we meet with almost a dozen people every week, lending an ear and a prayer as they navigate various struggles. Our Stephen ministers, folks like you who have been trained to do the same, offer additional one-on-one -on -one support. And you already heard all about the Glenelg Youth and Family Services downstairs, right across the hall from the chapel, which offers similar support for teenagers and kids and their families. Now, I know how important this is because I have seen firsthand over the years more adolescents than I can count in this church alone who struggle with severe mental health crises, kids on medication, kids who have been hospitalized, kids who have tried to hurt themselves. This kind of ongoing support that they offer is critical. And still, Still, the stigma around mental health persists. We don't like to talk about it, not when it affects us and our family. I've tried to fight that stigma by sharing my own struggles with depression and my own reliance on medication and a good therapist. And I'll take it a step further with his permission. My own son, Ethan, is a client of the Glen Owen Youth and Family Service. So I can personally attest to the value of their work and the phenomenal uh, care that they provide. Like I said, I share this with his permission because he's not ashamed to admit that a little extra support has been good for him. He's willing to be open about it. I'm proud of him for that. He had to fill out a form for school recently and there was a question about sports and extracurricular activities and in the blank space, he simply wrote, therapy. <laughs> but you know what? I'm not sure that he would go if the offices weren't here at church. He doesn't like the big crowds on Sunday mornings. That's why you don't see him around here too often. But he really likes coming here during the week. And, you know, I feel really comfortable here at church. He told me once on our way down to Deanna's office, 
Hey, that's awesome, buddy, I replied. I'm glad you feel so comfortable here. Yeah, he said, you know, the couches are really soft. <laughs> really comfortable. Sometimes I forget how literal a nine-year-old can be. He's just a kid. He doesn't have any major problems, fortunately. Um, he's got some focus issues, and his little brother drives him crazy, you know, which is pretty much his job, and he's very good at it. But that's key to understanding mental health issues. You know, just because you aren't wandering around a graveyard in the middle of the night, howling and cutting yourself, that doesn't mean you aren't struggling. It doesn't mean you don't need a little help. Sometimes we all do. We're a long way from 1970, but I read a great bit of gonzo journalism last week piece from someone who was supposed to be covering the uh, 7th Democratic presidential debate in Iowa. But rather than discuss the politics of the debate itself, he decided to write a piece on his experience in the press room, a giant gymnasium inside Drake University's athletic building, stuffed with hundreds of hand-wringing journalists exhausted from chasing the leading candidates all over the country, from town hall meetings to small town diners, just utterly weary. The fatigue in the room was palpable. And in order to lighten things up, school administrators paraded their lovable mascot, a bulldog named Griff, around the gym for folks to pet and talk to and play with, a little something to distract them from their troubles. Why do people love Griff so much? The writer grumpily mused out loud in the press room. To which a nearby journalist replied without skipping a beat, we have little to no happiness here. <laughs> Sadly, I think that statement is probably true of our society at large. But I don't think it's true of the church. And that's because we don't ignore our problems here or pretend they don't exist. When Jesus healed the man from Gergesa, the other villagers tried to throw him out of their town. Yes, that may have had something to do with him sending the local economy off of the cliff, but I think they also preferred to live in denial and fear rather than admit they had a problem. But here, we name our demons. Every time we conduct a poll or a survey or a listening session in this church about the issues people care about, mental health always rises to the top of the list. And I think that's because it's the issue that affects us in this community personally the most. Yes, I know folks here care about gun violence and homelessness and affordable housing and, and immigration and all kinds of really important issues, but most of them don't affect us personally in the way that mental health does. You would be hard-pressed to find a family in this church or anywhere else that isn't affected by mental illness. And we do our best to care for each other here because it's not really a matter of them. It's us. It's always been us. At the Kentucky Derby, Hunter S. Thompson had been searching for a face that articulated and embodied all of the wretched suffering he saw in the world. 
Parading through bars, betting counters, and the stadium stands, he pursued that elusive face. And eventually, after days of hard drinking, he found it. My eyes had finally opened enough for me to focus on the mirror across the room. He writes with brutal candor, and I was stunned at the shock of recognition. There he was, by God, a puffy, drink-ravaged, disease-ridden caricature, like an awful cartoon version of an old snapshot in some once-proud mother's family photo album. It was the face we'd been looking for, and it was, of course, my own. Mental illness does not reside on the fringes of society or on the periphery, no more than the decadence and depravity of the Kentucky Derby could be relegated to some tailgating party in a distant parking lot. No, Thompson tells us, that human bondage, that decadence, that depravity is the Kentucky Derby. It is the main event, the thing we don't talk about, but the only thing worth talking about. And likewise, mental illness and distress are everywhere. It's out there, yes, but it's also in here, with us. It is us. And only by facing it and naming it, as Jesus does, can we know healing and enjoy this life that God has given us. Last night we had an evening of storytelling and songs here at church. And as Bobby Joe sang about the storms in our lives and the sanctuary that we find. I couldn't help but look around the room and reflect on everything that those of us gathered there struggle with. As a pastor, I am privy to many of the inner workings of your lives that you have shared with me. And I saw people who had lost children or their spouses or their parents. I saw people who struggle with addiction. I saw People, refugees from divorce and grief. I saw people who lay awake at night worrying about their finances or their kids. I saw kids who've had to grow up too soon. And I saw all of them, all of you, all of us, gathered together in a safe place held by the love of God. It's a place where we can enjoy this life. And the couches are very comfortable. <laughs> Amen.